Welcome to the Camerosity Podcast, the first ever open source film photography podcast. I am your host, Mike Ekman, and this week we finally get to put that open source moniker to test and invite some listeners to join us, ask questions, and participate in whatever discussions we might have. This is the first time something like this has been attempted, so who knows how successful it will be, but we'll never know if we don't try. Joining me this week from Gainesville, Florida, Mr. Anthony Rue. How are you tonight, Anthony? Doing well, doing well, Mike. All right. Uh, also from Chicago, Illinois, Mr. Johnny Sisson. Yo, Johnny. What's up, guys? All right. And of course, all the way from the land down under, Ms. Theo Panagopoulos. Hey, Theo. G'day, g'day. Looking forward to uh, meeting a couple of people joining us. All right. Looks like we have um, some some callers to, to join our conversation. Uh, I'm, I can clearly tell this is Vlad Kern uh, from USSR Photo. And we have Matt Jones. Hello. Hey, Hello, Matt. guys. Hey, Matt. I just magically appeared. <laughs> I magically appeared. Yeah. We make people wait in the waiting room until we're ready to, to click the admit button. So uh, you and, and Vlad Kern um, are, are with us now on the show. I don't hey, know. Hi, man. guys. Hey, guys. Hey, good to be here. Hey. <laughs> We've had Vlad before. Um, I, I always love seeing his collection of, of, you know, just Soviet cameras. I mean, it's for, for anybody who's who's seen a camera collection before. That's the collection to see. It's just so nicely presented. Uh, I know I gush over it every time I see it, but I, I have to. You know, it's it's just one of those things. Um, appreciate it. Appreciate it. <laughs> so, Matt, uh, I you're you're first time caller, I guess. Uh, welcome. Thanks, guys. I can't believe Vlad's that. But it's not a green screen, is it? Behind Vlad, there. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is that is real. I've been there it's before. The thing. Yeah, it's just a, a Photoshop stamp repeated over and over again. Yeah, <laughs> just the one panel. <laughs> it's what yeah, I'm going like. to open some doors here to prove it to you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in uh, sunny Thailand at the moment. Thailand, uh, all right. Oh, wow. Breakfast time. You know, when when I announced um, the time for this, a couple of people started bellyaching about, you know, what time we record because I'm uh, Northwest Indiana, Central Time Zone. So it's 9.04 p.m. here. Uh, Anthony's in Florida, so it's 10 o'clock there. But, you know, some people in Europe are like, that's the middle of the night. Um <laughs> and but it's like you know what there's going to be a part of the world that's not going to be able to join no matter what you know there's 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 24 time zones actually I think there's what 25 of them but um you know you, no matter what time you do it there's going to be somebody that gets excluded so for this one unfortunately it's europe <laughs> but it's good to see you know we can get we can get thailand we can get australia new zealand uh japan i don't know if we have any japan people uh perry's in hong kong um, so, you know, it's kind of neat to have, you know, different time zones to be able to get different types of people from all over the world to participate. Um, yeah, sure. The, so the, what, the what, guy that sucked me into this was Theo, but he didn't turn up. Oh, no, he's there now. He's right there. That's oh, Theo. Oh, yeah. oh, he's there. Oh, how do you see? Oh, i got to work out how to see everyone. Anyway, <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> yeah, the video won't be used. Uh, we just do the audio, so um it's but it's good to be able to you know show things in case there's something you want to share with the group you know i have my topcon r the one oh, of the most nice massive, oh, uh, one of the most mass it, it probably doesn't look to scale unless you put it up next to something else you oh my gosh oh he's got a plobble makina oh my uh, god yes i saw you post that i think that's that's cool i love shooting this camera it is it it's, it's fussy you know it's you have to be uh 
you have to use it on its own terms. Um, but it, I just love working with this camera. Yeah. I love how it has two different focus, uh, like distances, depending on which lens you're using. Yep. That was something that, that caused me a bit of, you know, read that, read the bleeping manual. Uh, the first time I tried to use it, it was a little bit intimidating for me. Um, but I guess, you know, uh, Matt, I, I'm, I'm curious to see, uh, you know, what's, what's, what's new with you. I mean, have you ha had any acquisitions or, um, what, what do you want to talk about? Yeah, I'm, I'm probably not ideally suited to this podcast because you guys are like huge collectors and I am yeah. not, I, I've got a dark room. I do printing. Um, okay. so I'm more into that side of things that, the, the one thing that piqued my interest about your show is because you call you call it the open source podcast and um, I'm someone that for the last 15 years has been using Linux and, and open source software for all my photography needs. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I wondered how literally you took it and I wondered maybe there's some other listeners that uh, hear the open sourcing and and listen and and maybe they want to hear just a little bit about the software that we do use on the open source side of things. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of just picked that term to mean you know with, with true open source, you basically create something and then let anybody else just kind of run with it. You know, you could make a, a computer program that performs a function and then you allow other people to modify it. So I kind of use that to describe this as a podcast where. You know, um, there's a lot of other excellent podcasts that typically have a guest host. They typically have topics ahead of time that they, you know, want to discuss. Um, but the idea with this one was just kind of like throw caution to the wind and just start inviting people. You know, I always grew up liking, you know, FM, AM radio and, and you know, people would call in and just ask questions. And I, I thought there's really no nothing like that in the film photography world. So that was the idea. Um to, to create a podcast for anybody who hasn't done it, it's, it's a little bit more difficult than you might think, you know, just to get it sounding right, getting it hosted. Johnny actually had to get this one on, on Apple because no matter what I did, I could not get an account created with them. So, you know, there's a lot to go into it. You know, you, I mean, there's not a ton of editing that needs to be done, but, you know, there's some work. So for the first couple episodes, we really weren't embracing the open source. You know, it was just kind of like us. Uh, you know, chit chatting. Um, but you know, I felt comfortable. So you know, really, you, 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 Vlad and and Matt are the first two guests we've had. Um, and for anybody listening, truly, I did not know they were going to be joining until a few minutes before the the show. So uh, you know, that's that's what open source means. Uh, if you want to talk about, I mean, I'm curious to hear how Linux can be, uh, you know, employed, you know, with photography. I mean. Would you have like some kind of database or something that you use to to track what you yeah, do? Or just just remember that Matt's actually I referred to him I think in the last that podcast episode as the outlier in Thailand. So okay. he's the outlier on our pixels <laughs> and frames group. <laughs> Makes me sound like the Mandalorian or something. <laughs> That's a good thing to sound like. <laughs> you, you mentioned that this that that it's like uh, AM or or FM radio. I'm wondering who the shock jock is. Is that Johnny? <laughs> yeah, probably. Wait, wait, why, why, what did I do? You could be the Howard Stern. <laughs> <laughs> Baba Bowie. <laughs> it's funny how Howard the, Stern's um, known so well over. <laughs> no, go ahead. Uh, well, basically, yeah, open source because you don't need to pay for anything. It's all free. And you're not being a pirate either because people just 
make Linux and give right. it away. There's hundreds of versions of it. But for scanning, um, I just use raw therapy uh, and a digital camera, and it's got a great, um, a bit like, what's that negative pro lab something that you use on Lightroom? Well, it's got a version yeah, of that. Pro. So you, yeah, so when you import your, your negative scans, you just click a button that says this is a negative and it automatically recognises it and just inverts everything and has a go at the colours. I mean, it's probably not as polished, but it, it certainly works. So it makes life easy. And then, that, so that's like the Lightroom, I guess. And I don't do catalogues and things because I don't, I don't trust it. You know, what if this crashes or you change computers? I just prefer to keep everything on hard drives or... And if I want to search, I just put all my good photos on Google Photos and they've got fantastic search engines, you know, for they can tell if it's a cat or a face or whatever and they, they pull out your file names. So if I develop something in Xtol, I put in the file name Xtol and, that, and then when I do a search on Google Photos, it'll, it'll pull all that stuff up. So, And then if, you, if the Photoshop alternative is certainly GIMP, which probably most people have heard of, um, mm. that's cool. all free as well. And then if you're doing things like 2.5D parallax animations, that sort of stuff is Blender, you use Blender. Um, if you're doing stitching, you use Hugen, Hugen Stitch, puts them together. All completely free, no Adobe licenses um, and available to anyone. And it works on slow computers too because yeah. that's what Linux is about. So the GIMP, I haven't used it in 10 years, maybe. Um, did they make any progress on like feature set? And I guess I haven't seen it. I've been using Photoshop all this time, but I did try it. It was kind of rudimentary at a time. How's it now? Yeah, I mean, there's new releases all the time. Like it, all the open source stuff gets updated multiple times a year. And it's just like the app store on your phone. It just... Every week your computer says, do you want to update? And it gives you a list of things and it just updates. So you're using GIMP and, and the tools, you don't even know because you just open it one day and, oh, that's changed. And, and then the next, oh, that's doing that now. You know, it's just a, a rolling sort of upgrade as you go. And it supports yeah. all the raw stuff for all the different Yeah, features. well, GIMP's probably not as good for that all the raw files, that's where raw therapy is is mm. is the good one. Like it will support all those like Sony and, and Olympus multi-stitch files and all that sort of thing, which is actually what I scan with and Olympus doing with the micro four thirds with the, the high res mode. Um, and it, it supports all of that. It just seamlessly puts all those images together. You don't have to worry about it. You know, in, in my younger years, I I don't I never paid for software. I mean, I don't I think I went 20 years never once paid for Microsoft my operating system. Uh, I probably had early versions of Photoshop, you know, that I had downloaded from, you know, BBSs and such. But, you know, as I've gotten older, I just want stuff to work, you know, and I'm willing to pay for that. Um, I absolutely understand why people hate Adobe. I get it. Uh, but it works and I don't have to keep remembering new things. So, you know, that like, you know, again, as I get older, once I find a process that works for me, um, even though there might be a better way to do it, I I'm reluctant to change. So, you know, like Vlad, I I'm an I'm a Adobe person too. I don't use Lightroom though. I do everything in Photoshop. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, when I do 
when I, when I shoot film, I scan, I have an Epson flatbed scanner. I use Silverfast as my scanning software. Uh, and then I do whatever tweaks cropping I need to do in Photoshop. And that's the same uh, thing I use for my digital photography too. I, I, you know, I shoot Fuji mirrorless, you know, I have a Nikon DSLR. I have a couple older Sony's too. And, and I've never, ever had any kind of compatibility issues with Photoshop. So I hate that I have to pay for it. I would prefer to have it for free. But I, you know, for me, it, I, I just tend to use what works. It, it's interesting. They get a bad rap because they, they are a subscription um, system yeah. these days. But I actually found that as it's actually a, an advantage because it means that everybody can afford the actual subscription and get the latest version without mm-hmm. having to every few years to front up with $1,000 to buy the, the package if, if, you know, if you want to go down that yeah. route. And yeah, as to Matt's point, there's this cheap, there's free options as well. So yeah, yeah I, I, I really can't, you know, tolerate that argument against the subscription that well. I, I think it's actually a model that works, and it's a, it's a it's more intuitive. I hate, hate, hate the subscription model, and it's tough because <laughs> because I I started off with photoshop like 0.75 on a mac sc with two floppy yeah. drives where you'd click on the brush icon and have to find disk number 17 and pop it into the floppy yeah. drive and then oh, <laughs> i made a mistake i need the erase tool where's this oh, no. and you just be you know and uh, you know but for me i when i was working commercially doing marketing in the dive industry and i was i was, I was basically living in photoshop doing color correction on on underwater photography and I mean, I just had to live in Photoshop, you know, I was doing yeah. like massively layered files and just, I mean, my, my business card actually said I can fix it in Photoshop. Um, <laughs> and the, also uh, I went from all this page maker to InDesign and I was doing textbooks in InDesign. And I mean, I just, it's just like the currency of what I have to do. So I, I mean, I kind of liked the access to all of the apps at once, you know, to be able to do, illustrator to do font manipulation and layer that into an InDesign document. And I use Lightroom and I, for all my digital work and I use Photoshop pretty much exclusively for my scans of my film work. Um, but, you know, I was always affiliated with the university and we had academic pricing. So when they went hey, through the subscription, it yeah. did not save me any money. Um, yeah. But now it's, I just counted as a business expense and cost it out as, as part of what I do for my, you know, for my cafe, because I have to do promotional work and have to, you know, I'm, I'm in an Adobe product pretty much every single day of my life. Yeah. Um, but it's just so, I mean, it's just, it's, I, I came from a background of doing internet development and have had plenty of installations of, of various iterations of, of, of Linux and, and used to work on AIX and, uh, um, I just, I don't know when it comes time to do my own personal work, just give me a good Mac and, a, and an Adobe subscription and I'm happy. You know, I mean, sometimes I think about, you know, what is $10 a month, $20 a month and you know, multiply that over the course of a year. It's like, man, I don't want to have to keep spending that in perpetual, you know, forever on Adobe products. But then another way to look at it is I have no problem buying a pizza, you know, for $25 once a week. Right. You know, and then I, I mean, I enjoy the pizza and I eat the pizza and I love the pizza, but then I need to keep buying more pizzas, you know, whereas, I mean, I, I do enough with photography that it's like, should I really be nickel and diming myself, you know, 
20. I mean, if I didn't like it, I didn't like it, but it works for me. So I'm hooked and they got me. And I, I, I imagine that that's the way that a lot of people feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it's a bit of a mood argument. If you're into film photography um, or camera collecting or both, then you know saving pennies here and there on on the software to support that habit is is, is not where you want to be going. <laughs> yeah, if you, if you can't afford a monthly subscription, if right. like if that's what's breaking you, then you're in the wrong hobby. Yeah. <laughs> so I think this actually is a, one of the topics I had jotted down that like at one point I want to discuss. So it's funny that it just naturally went this way. Um, but we were talking a little bit more about digitizing, you know, and I know that, that a lot of people do that. And, and I've seen some fantastic results at digitizing negatives with a you know, digital camera, but I, 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 I still do flatbed scanner for all my film and, I found that the, the the software side of digitizing just was was cumbersome for me. Oh um, wow, really? Yeah. So I mean, I don't know what what do you guys do? You know, Theo, we were just talking about this in the yeah. podcasters or the 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 bloggers chat that we have, but uh, it seems kind of divided down the middle. There's some people that just stick with flatbed scanners. Yeah, I'm I'm I mean I'm I'm still between a flatbed and a dedicated 35 millimeter as well because I still use the Nikon's Cool Cool Scan 4000 mm. as well, and, and the quality of that is just I cannot match that with any digital camera or yeah. flatbed. So, um, but I've got the process down pat as well, so I don't actually have any motivation at all to try the, okay. the digital camera route because I've got that worked out. It, it's a process. It works. I don't have to think about it. Yeah, and it, and it just just does what I needed to. That's what, that's if, what matters. And yeah, I think, exactly. I think mm. what's intimidating about digitizing is there's 80 million variables. You know, which lens you use, which camera you use. Is it full frame? Is it crop sensor? Are you using a bellows? Are you using a copy stand? Are you mounting the camera vertically or is it horizontally? You know, I mean, I, it, there's no one way that works for 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 everybody. And like, if you ask. You know, I know Mike Novak has a pretty nice setup. You know, I've seen pictures of what he uses, but like his system looks absolutely nothing like anybody else's does. So <laughs> if you want to, if you want to try it out for yourself, apart from just telling somebody to give you a parts list, what should I buy? It's intimidating. I, I, I can actually understand that argument because it is intimidating. And there's, there's a lot of uh, small things that if you don't, do it right. Like making sure things are squared up. You get really lousy results. Yeah. And it's hard to, it's hard to explain all that to some, I mean, I used yeah. to run a drum scanner at a photo lab. I would rather have all of you scan in a line and kick me all in the balls and <laughs> flatbed scan negatives at this point. I, I, I mean, I just never will do it again in my entire life, you know? Uh, but I, but I also have a digitizing setup that's really straightforward and with a lot of trial and error, I figured out how to build a setup that I could basically leave set up on a, you know, um, a copy stand. I'm yeah. trying to do it. There's, there's a lot of ways to do it where it, it can lead to frustration. You kind of, my feeling is you kind of need to get the right setup to make it easy for yourself. And then it's right. really, really easy, but it can be really, really hard also, you know? So the, you, you just do 35 millimeter though, right? Like you can't, uh, can you do medium format? Yeah, I do medium format as well. I usually, I usually um, stitch it. If I'm going to do, you know, medium format, I'll usually stitch the shots together to make okay. a single image, but I, you don't have to, you know, if I want to get kind of grain level 
one to one grain size, then I okay. do that. But it's kind of overkill, to be honest. Okay. The only yeah. digital camera that I have is a, a Pentax K1, and I'm, I'm I've got uh, which is a great camera. I mean, I actually love that camera, and I've got you know Takamar close up you know, macro lens. I'm sure would work fine. What I don't have is room for a proper cop- copy stand. Yeah. I mean, it just there's just no place in my house. Well, that I, I, I could run it. I could I could I could pull my copy stand into the frame right now. It's that small. I have a very small copy stand. I mean, it it the footprint of it is less than 16 by 20. So it's, yeah, I don't have room for that. OK, so <laughs> to me, but there you so there you go. I mean, but that's that's OK. It, it, it it's actually smaller than my flatbed scanner. So, you know, from that standpoint, for me, it works out good space wise. Um, it's the flatbed scanner that gets in the way that I hate that I still own it, but I own it for flat, you know, reflective artwork. See, I've, I've got a prime film XA dedicated 35 scanner. Well, there and, you go. Yeah. And then I also have the V 700 for medium format and pan and panoramic work. Um, I actually yeah. prefer using the prime. Um, but yeah. you know, I'm, I'm one of these nerds that, you know, since I'm not doing darkroom work anymore, I actually like scanning. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, I, it's kind of a Zen time for me to, uh, you know, do my tweaks. Uh, I, I go, um, you know, I don't use Silverfast. I'm using uh, the same thing I've used for 100 years, which is ViewScan. I mean, I think I paid for my ViewScan license mm-hmm. 20 years ago. And yeah. it's, Same here. it's still upgrading. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> uh, and I go from, I go from ViewScan, bring it in as a, as a, a camera raw or DNG file. Uh, and yeah. then go straight into Photoshop and do all my work in Photoshop. And it's just like, I'm so comfortable with the workflow that I have and, and yeah. editing levels and, and doing the tweaks that I do. And I've, I've, I'm one of these people that, you know, I, I spent too much time in a dark room, like manipulating files. Hallelujah. I've got no problem working Hallelujah. out of a, a negative in Photoshop because that's exactly what I would do in a dark room anyway. You know, right. it's just like, there's no pure file, you know, there's no such thing as an unmanipulated file. It's manipulated as soon as you digitize it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, so something know, I'm hearing all you guys say, and I've said it too, is it's workflow. I mean, like you absolutely. have to, you have to get that workflow down and everybody's yeah. workflow is different. You know, right. it's, it's just like every single person has a favorite black and white developer, you know? Um, I, I, I joke about the worst thing about HC 110 is that it's so good. It makes me not want to try any other developer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just, yeah. I just use it for everything. I, I absolutely know there's other options and I do want to try them, but when it, cause I always do my film developing late at night, like right now. So when it's, you know, nine, 10 o'clock at night and I'm standing over the sink, you know, do I want to learn something new or just do what I know? And I just, I, I tend to fall back into right. to what I know. I got to tell you, though, this Acros that I shot today from 2003 looked really good in Rodinal. I See, I'm the same as you, Mike, but with Rodinal. I mean, Rodinal. It's, yeah. yeah. You know, it's, or, the, same, or it's for, the same thing. Or for lazy people like me, I just sent it into the darkroom. <laughs> there you go, Vlad. <laughs> and, oh, and Vlad, that's, that's exactly what I do, too. <laughs> <laughs> and there's nothing I mean, wrong they, with that. They have a, whatever industrial scanner they have in there is is a pretty pretty good quality. Yeah. Plus, plus I I shoot mostly lately uh, like Velvia and Sensia slide, so it's like you don't want to develop it at home, and so it's all it's all one shot thing. Yeah, it's expensive, but I mean I don't shoot that much either on on, on yeah. film, but it's well worth it. I mean whatever they do, they have their own clouds. It's, it's kind of nice service. I like them. They're, I think they're out in California, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. So, and, I've heard, and I've heard, Vlad, your 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 actual um, photography is actually very, very good. From um, I heard that in some other well, podcast. Well, his recent photography, <laughs> he's got kind of a little dark secret that you know some of his Soviet camera collector friends may not want to know. But uh, yeah, I've <laughs> been betraying the, the Soviet <laughs> motherland for a little bit. I. Uh, Picked up a few Nikons. (laughs) He got bit by the Nikon bug. (laughs) Yeah, I got got into the FM uh, line of Nikons and picked up a bunch of glass and actually shot myself in the foot uh, a couple of days ago. I picked up a pretty really nice FM2 from uh, Gene's camera from John John Gilchrist in uh, South Bend. And I forgot to take off a sniper uh, for another one. So I ended up Uh-oh. with two FM2s. <laughs> <laughs> so I, so I, I, think, I think that is something that everybody could say has happened to them at least once, whether they were using a sniper or not. You, have, you go from zero to two on something. Yeah, it's my, my Nikon. I don't know. I have like a Nikon box now. It's scary. <laughs> uh, I'm definitely being sent to Gulag. For this, <laughs> twice, twice, maybe even <laughs> got like double. But so uh, camera, the first so, camera I ever purchased uh, when I was uh, like twenty years old in my first college photo class was an Nikon FM2. Got it the first month it was available from B and H with that Series wow. E fifty millimeter, and I oh, still nice. have it. That camera has been around the world. When I was yeah. photographing in Eastern Europe in the in, in nineteen eighty nine ninety, I had the whole thing covered over in black tape so nobody could see it was a Nikon. Because uh, in some of the places I was moving, you just didn't really want to flash that around. Um, but I, I just, I'm so every time I pick that camera up, it's just like, yeah, this is this is it. This is the camera. This is, if I had only one SLR, it would probably be an FM2. Yeah, uh, I'm, it's an absolutely marvelous line. I mean, I actually Mike helped me get to. I, I've been shooting FM, the first one, uh, for the last couple of months, pretty extensively, and it's just an amazing camera. Uh, and Mike uh, actually helped me uh, pick out. Well, because you kind of bounced around between like which ones you wanted. You know, you started with an F2. You yeah, found that I, to be too heavy? Yeah, I got an F2 and I think it's going to go back on eBay. It's just way too heavy. I mean, I'm I'm one of the reasons I wanted to go like the light route because I'm I'm tired of lugging around like a key of six. Well, 60 <laughs> or like even 60. I mean, it gives you a hernia like in, 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 after a day. <laughs> Um, but the FM is pretty nice and light. Uh, Zenith E was like really good. I mean, it's like the most common thing you can find. It was a really good shooter as well. I mean, it's like no batteries needed. If the selenium meter works, it's basically, it's just like a great all-around shooter. I mean, really, it gives you like very little problems. But again, it's heavy. So, I mean, I'm 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 done with heavy stuff. I've been lugging around a D600 with like a, uh, was it a the uh the 75 200 lens for a while and that thing is like super heavy so i mean just tired needed lighter stuff and i wanted film so this was like a pretty nice alternative but the f with fm i noticed that i really i'm really missing those fast fast speeds because when you're shooting when it's sunny i mean it's you can't open up your lens and now i picked up uh, a couple days ago the 1.2 55 millimeter uh lens it's just beautiful glass uh it's it's really i mean i haven't held a glass this nice in my hands in a while i mean it's like it's really like really quality heavy like it's like 425 grams or something uh insanely heavy it is it is very as mike mike did tell me it's going to be like front heavy on fm but you almost you almost need to keep that f2 just to balance it out 
Yeah, it's, that makes it even more heavier. I mean, that's <laughs> the, the the FM. I mean, I can manage it. I mean, you 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 hold it with one hand by the lens, so it's it's all right. I mean, you can kind of control that balance. But I have a little problem with it. It's like it overturns infinity just just by a millimeter. I don't know why. Uh, I think somebody like either re- reassemble it, it it wrong or something. Or put is it, it is it room. actually focusing beyond infinity, or is the the mark on the lens it just tells you the distance off by a little bit? Well, when Pre- you go all the all the way to the end, when it's to the infinity, it it uh, infinity it, is, a little, is one millimeter before that, and then okay. Starts- so the lens is focusing beyond infinity. Yeah, I mean, okay. I kind of gotten used yeah. to it already. Like, you can live with it, but uh, I I, yeah. I mean. I talked to some guys. They said it's it's, it's fixable, but uh, for now I'll, I'll I'll deal with it. And it seems yeah. right. It's a very nice lens. So I'm shooting a sincere uh, films for it right now. So we'll see how that's gonna turn out. So, for yeah. for anybody who who likes infinity stops, um, you will hate uh, mirror lenses. I, I've been shooting an MTO 500, and those things go like way past infinity. They do you know? really. So well, you when you're when you're like you point the you think you're going to shoot a picture of the moon you think you can just turn the focus ring all the way and it'll just stop and the moon will be sharp but nope nope <laughs> are you, are you sure it's not an adapter an adapter no well the one i have has a nikon f mount adapter on it but uh, i i've i've I, as far as i know i mean correct me if i'm wrong but every mirror lens i've ever had focuses beyond infinity i always thought they did that on purpose just so you could always hone it in Really, I mean, I have the MTO one thousand, and I I think I shot with it. I, I don't recall. Does it stop it. at infinity? I th- I think so. Okay, I, maybe uh, I'm wrong then. But I I've been putting it directly on the thread thread pitch to the to the. I was putting directly the thread pitch to like one of uh, film cameras, so I think it stops there. But uh, okay. I think the adapter it's it, this lens is so close to the to the camera. I think it actually the adapter makes a. A difference on the infinity stop okay they think so, that's Vlad, what i like about the fm2 is like the kalishnikov of uh of cameras <laughs> I, i've trudged that thing through the jungles of central america <laughs> i used to throw it in my dive bag on liveaboard boats doing like crossings and then when i was going to go up to montreal in the middle of winter i asked the the classic camera revival guys you know what camera should i take to montreal knowing it was going to be like 20 below zero you know fahrenheit and they're like, oh, do you have an FM2? Uh, that's about the only thing that's not going really? to freeze on you while you're shooting. And I've got photos like standing on like frozen lakes with snow drifts around me. And I was just shooting away with the FM2. Never had one issue with it. Wow. Uh, that has a titanium uh, shutter, uh, like, like a right. titanium fan shutter. It's not like the F series. That, yeah. That, that's a focal right. plane. Yeah, oh, it goes right. into one four thousandth is the top speed. That's pretty much right. That, the faster that's shutter. That's cool. It's mechanical, yeah. right? The faster shutter mm-hmm. speed, then it would have a faster flash sync too. Uh, but one, the one thing you lose, which for most people isn't a big deal, but the FM2 does lose the ability of mounting the non-AI lenses. Mm-hmm. So if you have some really old Nikon lenses, they will not mount to the FM2, but right. they, will, they will mount to the FM. But then you lose, um, the, I think you're, it's at 1 1,000th is that the regular FM. But then you just buy both. Well, the FMs are pretty cheap. The FM2s you got to save up a little bit for, but you can usually pick up an FM for way under a hundred bucks still. Uh, not anymore. My not anymore? I, no. I paid $300 for mine, yeah. but it was CL8. But, really? So, okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, they're not cheap anymore. 
Yeah, the, the FM2 was pretty much real. It's it's was basically the same price. It wasn't CL8, but it was also 300, 350 bucks okay. for the FM2. So a good FM2 will run you close to 400 probably yeah. at this point. I was looking at sold prices because I need to get rid of the second one on eBay and it they they sell nicely at about like 380 price point, like very nicely. So I might be able to still I, I you could, Go ahead, Anthony. I picked one up last year on Facebook Marketplace from a, a kid that the, is a student at UF whose uncle had been a photographer and had given him the camera to see if he was interested in film photography. He was more interested in the $150 he uh, sold me the camera for. <laughs> um, so I got a, a black, like mint condition black FM2 with the uh, uh, 51.4 for 150. Uh, wow. Wow. With yes. the one, yeah, that's one point four. Is that's uh, a hundred fifty dollar lens too? I, I mean, was pretty happy with that one. So now I have the black and the silver, and I can't sell that. I mean, you got to have one of each. <laughs> I don't know. Silver ones don't really attract me for some reason. Like everything I get is the, the black bodies. I don't know why. And I know it's a trend right now and everything, but like for some reason it looks such 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 has a, such a meaner look when uh, when you use the the black FM two. The silver one is like. I don't know. It's just a little overdone at this point because everybody tries to do silver revival cameras with like digital, with uh, the new Nikon's and all the stuff and like kind of I don't know the, the black ones. Like I mean, look a little bit sleeker. Well, I'm from the Caucasus regions. Everything everything black is cool there. So <laughs> everybody wears black. Everybody blacks out blacks out their cars. And that's pretty much what what I'm doing here. Too. <laughs> blacking out my cameras i mean i don't think like when i got my car like i don't think i have a single chrome spot left on it i basically had everything covered <laughs> with like <laughs> with black paint. well they All keep right. releasing these uh digital retro cameras now nikon has that new z-mount i don't even know what it's cool. called it looks like the fm kind of but it's i think mm-hmm. it's only chrome which is kind of opposite now because digital cameras for so long have all been black that for the for the pure retro look they're doing them in silver you know or chrome again yeah, the other one. What was the the uh, the the DF? The DF, yeah, yeah. That was also Chrome. That was a cool looking camera as well. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, an SLR though, right? I think in the right. new ones, mirror. Look, yeah. So Matt, okay. what are the hot cameras in Thailand right now? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know how. When you guys say, "Oh, this is hot," and this is not hot, and this is popular, I don't know. How do you know that? Where are you? What are you doing? You live eBay in prices. the world or something? What's <laughs> eBay, what's eBay what, trends and prices, man? What's a yeah camera that would be like? No, for I example, don't. in the U.S., we no. can find Argus is really easily, but like uh, Pentacons uh, don't show up as easily. I I know what you're asking. I just wondered about okay where you get all these trends from. I'm <laughs> Kim <laughs> some Kardashian, kind of virtual camera world that you're all living in. Um, I think there's. There's probably a lot of TLRs here for some reason. They seem to be quite easy to get. Um, Nikon's, of course, too. There's Nikon cameras currently made in Thailand, and it's possible. I don't know if any of the mechanical ones were, but and the old king here used to be always photographed with his Nikon SLR, so it kind of made Nikon's a bit of a patriotic camera here. So Nikon's and TLRs are are really popular. I don't know why the TLRs, but getting them in good condition is not easy. Um, there's, there's shops that sell them here really cheaply, but then they may not work very well or, you know, last very long. 
I've you know, been got those lucky. markets, don't they, uh, Matt, in Thailand, yeah. where they're just open in a shed in in the middle of the humidity and all that kind of thing, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. There's there's like um, I don't know if anyone's ever been here, but there's lots of shopping centers that are just like I guess it's the same in in uh, Hong Kong that they have it's like a big mall with elevators, and then every shop sells camera gear, you know. And obviously, it's not analog camera gear anymore, but there's still a lot of them in there, and you know, these shops cost a few dollars to rent and they change hands all the time. So someone will come in and bring a big suitcase full of old cameras and sell them really cheap, but they'll be, they won't be there, may not be there next week. And so who cares if they work or not? Sort of so is, is due to the humidity, is fungus, lens fungus a bigger issue for you or, or, or is it about the same? I don't, I don't know really. I have very few lenses with fungus. Maybe I do have one or two and I, kind of keep them in a cupboard with a bag of rice next to them to try okay. and dehumidify it a little bit. The, the heat, the worst thing with the heat really is if you leave your film out for too long, it does get affected and you, you end up with sort of white dots on your film after you've processed mm. it or it, it can get really grainy um, as well. So you kind of got to keep all your film in the fridge. And then the other problem that presents is, you go out and shoot. If you just grab it straight from the fridge, unwrap it, put it in the camera, walk outside, you from it, it'll then get condensation dots yeah. on the film. I think maybe Canada has something in reverse. I don't know. You walk from the outside <laughs> to the inside or something like that happens. I'm not Chicago I'm not sure. has that problem too. <laughs> I've, yeah. I've 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 done that a couple of times where I've walked from the outside to the inside and then spend the next hour waiting for my camera to yeah defog defog yeah i would i would actually give you go ahead so i was just gonna ask johnny doesn't that just give you time to dodge the bullets mate (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) no you know you know what i i started doing is in the winter i carry around a ziploc bag in my camera bag uh because if you is if you ziploc if you put the camera in a ziploc bag you can then change environments and it won't, it won't, you know, haze over like that. So oh, that's a good tip. Yeah, it works. It, it, yeah. I mean, we, I, yeah, it works really well, actually. You know, when I, when I take my 120 out of the fridge and I've got to wait for it to warm up before I can sort of unwrap it, otherwise I get the conversation. If you shove it down your pants, it gets hot <laughs> much quicker. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Are you happy to see me or is that just a roll of film in your pants? <laughs> Hey, this is a legitimate thing. Remember the, the Polaroid cold clip. It's meant to go under your armpit. <laughs> Armpits well, too, yeah. <laughs> but it's, that's what it's designed for. It was the cold clip? Is that what it was called? Yeah, you'd, you'd pull your Type 100 peel-apart film, and they had a little... They're almost impossible not to find if you've ever found any you know, Kodak Polaroid camera wow. anywhere. You, but it's just two pieces of aluminum that are taped together. And you put your, you know, your sheet of film in there and close it together and stick it under your arm or in your jacket. Oh, wow. And it just, it, it, what happens is it makes the, uh, cause you know, it's temp- the old Polaroid film is temperature dependent on terms right. of development time. So you could then just use the development time for 70 degrees Fahrenheit or whatever. Cause you had it stuck in your armpit. So <laughs> better use a non-staining deodorant there. Yeah. There, right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, I don't know how many people know, Johnny, you grew up in a Polaroid family, right? Didn't I, your dad? I did. To, yeah. He, he was a both, salesman. My parents met at Polaroid. They, yeah. That's where they both worked when I, when they met. 
And uh, yeah, my, my, uh, my dad was literally a Polaroid sales guy and he had a whole, yeah. he had every Polaroid camera in his car and loads of film and drove around. I mean, he, he wouldn't believe he has so many stories because it was, there were very few that was, there were, there, it's, it's so hard to even imagine a world where photography doesn't happen right away anymore. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the, the, the applications for instant photography were unreal in the late sixties. It was like, it, it changed everything. So, I mean, he, you know, one of his customers was the crime lab for the Chicago police department. Another one was Fermi lab where the, you know, they were doing, uh, uh, the particle acceleration stuff. I mean, it, it was like every application you could think of where photography was needed. It just it changed everything. Yeah. You know? Well, I've read stories about how it was used in schools to teach kids about exposure. Sure. You know, I mean, which is funny because, you know, we, we could do it digitally now. That's like a, a duh thing. But back then, you know, a 10 pack of film, you could show what what does F2 look like? What does F4 right. look like? You know, yeah. and and and, you know, you wouldn't think that that was something that would be not a novel idea. But when people could first start doing that, it was like, oh, wow, this is a game changer. Yeah. Or studios to test out the exposure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that, my, that, that, my... Was a, that was a game changer. Mm hmm. My father was an orthodontist and he used uh, there you he used the, the, the Polaroid to take pictures of every mouth that he worked on, uh, which meant that I had a constant supply of hand-me-down Polaroid cameras as he would always get the latest oh. and greatest. So I had like an original SX-70. I still have my uh, big shot, you know, the plastic Andy Warhol nice. uh, portrait camera. Really bummed. I took my... Uh, I took my SX-70, which had roller issues, and I took it to a guy that had a, a shop out in um, Seattle that was supposed to be like the great guru of, of SX-70 repair on the West Coast. And I was, I was in Seattle for a conference, and I dropped it off, and he was going to do a complete overhaul on it and modify it so it could shoot 600. And uh, um, he went out of business and stole my camera. Oh, oh that sucks. <laughs> Yeah. The, fir the first time I saw the Polaroid was probably 1991 because before then nobody knew what it was. There was no instant film whatsoever in USSR. Wow. Uh, they actually had a few uh pro they had a few pro cameras that they made. Uh they made like about seven like a series uh camera that was a copy of one of those metal folding Polaroids from 1960s. Mm. Uh so they made maybe 10,000 of them or something ar around that number and but they could never produce the paper. So those things were just, you can right. find them in brand new condition. Uh, but in the 90s, uh, Polaroid actually opened a factory in, uh, in Russia. So they opened like a joint, uh, joint factory called Svetozor. I don't know if you guys are aware. So they, um, they manufactured the, uh, the 600s over, over there. And actually, you, you, you can find quite a few of those. And they, they say assembled in Russia in the back. The 600 and the 600. I'm sorry, 636 and 635 CLs. They were all they were all made in Russia. And actually, the ones in, they're made in UK. Um, they say made in UK in the back, but all the internals were uh, Russian made because wow. they were manufacturing all the control boards in the mm. in a Russian factory. It, that, that thing only lasted for like a couple of years. That's it. It's funny being in, in, in Vlad's uh, museum there. You know, he's got just wall after wall, shelf after shelf, these Soviet cameras. And in one little corner, there's like these four totally normal looking Polaroids. I'm like, what the hell are these doing here? Yeah. He, goes, he goes, look on the bottom and it says yeah. made in the Soviet Union. It's like, oh, wow, that's neat. Where, yeah. where are the Nikons going to live, mate? Uh, <laughs> which section there? 
Uh, they live in a, in a metal box under my desk. <laughs> <laughs> they live in the camera bag. Yeah, nobody can nobody can see them. They just like it's like a secret <laughs> locked box. In his defense, though, I, I just don't know there'd be anywhere else to put them. Though. <laughs> no, that's 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 true. But, but well, I am about to get another room with oh. uh, about maybe eight or nine more showing. Oh units. wow! Oh, expanding slowly. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting how everyone's talking about their parents and using um, Polaroids because I, I actually grew up where that was my, the camera my dad used and I'll, I'll never let go of this camera. It's the, the old rainbow Polaroid 1000. Oh, there's and, the toilet paper dispenser one. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, I'll, I'll never let go of that because that was my dad's camera and all my, you know, all my childhood photos are all taken on those and and interesting enough the polaroids have actually lasted i open up the albums and they're still fine yeah they've lasted really well yeah it's amazing i mean I've, I've scanned them now too just in case but it's 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 just um and i've had to scan them through those old photo albums you know the ones which which basically almost glue themselves shut um mm-hmm. with the, the plastic cover so i've had to sort of scan them through there which probably didn't do the quality much good because once you try and pull peel those open um, it's not going to do the photos any good, but um, but yeah, all my childhood is is taken on Polaroids and they're fine. Yet these days, you buy the Polaroid film and um, and oh, I reckon you maybe got six months. Um, to it's, scan yeah, it's so de- it's so depressing the state of instant yeah. film today. Yeah, it's. I mean, to, I, to be honest, I mean the the real instant film is Instax. I mean. Fuji was making Polaroids film for Asia under license from Polaroid. It's the real thing. The stuff that, I mean, I hate to say it, but the Polaroid original stuff is garbage. It just, it is. I mean, by comparison. But that's the impossible project, right? This is Well, it it was. Now it's Polaroid originals. Well, they just got the name up. They bought the name, basically. Yeah. yeah. So, but it's, it's really a shame. I mean, it's. I mean, the SX-70s are great. The 600s are cool, you know, but I mean, I just, there's so many of these peel apart, you yeah. know, these larger land cameras. This is the 250. Uh, it has a Zeiss. I mean, it's, it says Carl, wait, yeah. Zeiss icon. It's a range finder. Um, <laughs> but then they made, there's a couple other Polaroids that had, I think, a Yashica lens. Yeah, um, I, I have, that's what I have. The 190 and the one the 180, the 190, and the 195 right. are yeah. fully are fully manual. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Johnny, so some of those cameras were just fantastic. They're beautiful. Sorry, they're beautiful. go ahead, Anthony. Johnny, what was the Polaroid film that you had like uh, like an external like stick that once you peeled it apart, you had to like coat it with oh the, uh... that's the old uh Co- n- the pre 80, so th- 80 series 40 series yeah the one oh the the one the original 100 series uh film needed the coder bar because you know my parents also had one of those when i was growing up smells and, great know, that smell is indelibly yeah. like smells great in my childhood it's yeah like- same here <laughs> same here yeah those, these, those these monstrosities well. okay yeah. there's the original 95 i mean you can't see this but this thing is heavy it's it's yeah, <laughs> I've, I have my I have my grandfather's Polaroid 95 that he got in like 1953 or four or whatever. Um, so, yeah, there the, all those all the, the peel apart stuff is it's great film. I mean, it's yeah. I, I uh, Mike, I owe you a pack of film for that 
250. Yeah, my 250. Um, yeah, I got film I've, for you. I've always wanted to shoot it, but I, I, I missed out when you could get FP100 for 30 bucks. Now it's yeah. like, it's ridiculous that people are paying for this stuff. I, I bought uh, in about 2013, I bought what, 30, uh, 30 packs of FP3000B. And I, I still have, I have an entire mini fridge full of Polaroid, you know, uh, it will Fuji instant pack film. And it's it, it still viable. It's still viable, but it really needs to be shot. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's seven, eight years old now. So yeah. it really, needs. that's why I want to give you a pack so you can try it out in that. Camera. Yeah. I'd love to. I've never yeah. shot that camera before. It's and I, I just, I just stopped looking for them. Cause it's like, it, it's depressing, you know, yeah. I mean, I want to try these things out because I've seen what they could do, you know, I mean, some of those peel apart images were really good. And mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, and I give a ton of credit. I am not at all shitting on Polaroid originals and possible, whatever they're called today. They're, they're trying, you know, I can do that something. for you if you like. <laughs> you can shit on them, but, <laughs> but the, the, it just, it's garbage. You know, the yeah. image quality is like, there's gotta be something wrong with my camera, but then I look at what other people it, have been producing and it's like, no, that's just how it looks. It's, you know what, the people don't fully understand how much money Polaroid spent on R and D in yeah. the fifties and sixties. Yeah. They spent the equivalent of like billions of dollars to yeah. develop integral film and even the peel apart stuff. I mean, they were the Apple of the Apple computer of yeah. that era. And they literally spent billions of dollars to develop yeah. that film. I mean, so I don't, I, we could spend a whole episode geeking out about Polaroid, but for anybody who doesn't know really their history, just read up on Edwin land and just yeah. what that guy did. He was, he absolutely was the Steve jobs of his generation. I mean, mm -hmm. he basically said, I have a vision for something and I don't care how we do it. We're going to do it. And yeah. he did. Yeah. Yeah. My, my dad has a lot of Edwin land stories because he was in sales and Edwin land's opinion was this camera, these cameras, they don't need salesmen. They will sell themselves yeah. because they're gene. You know, it was, he's a re really interesting guy. So, well, he, he debuted the SX 70 almost exactly the same way Steve jobs debuted the iPhone. Yeah. He yeah. pulled it out of his pocket and yep. started taking pictures of the audience. And people were just like, what is that? Thing? <laughs> you want to know how cool they are going to YouTube and track down the, uh, the Ames film for the introduction of the uh, SX 70. Oh, how big was go. his pocket. And, you know, it's like, you've got <laughs> like the, the preeminent, like industrial designers of mid-century modern uh, doing this like 20 minute film about just how cool is the SX 70? Mm -hmm. We'll tell you. So Johnny, is your, is your dad still alive? Yeah. We're going to have to get him on a podcast. I would love to get him on. He has, he has so many stories. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I love that kind of, you know, those are the, I mean, you know, I mean, I hate to be morbid, but you know, these guys are kicking the bucket left and right. You oh, know? I know. No, no. He, he, I would love to get him on and just let him tell stories. Yeah. I mean, I mean even, even just a preview, I mentioned the Chicago police. This is one of my favorite yeah. Polaroid stories. Just really, I'll give you a brief taste of it is he was, you know, showing them how to do this Polaroid stuff. And they thought it was fantastic because they used to have to teletype between departments. That's how they sent pictures. Think about okay. it. Right. Yeah. So they realized now that they could just do the peel apart and have the picture, but they still had to walk up the stairs. So they realized it was a lot faster to just cut the fingers off. <laughs> so they would just cut the fingers off the body so they didn't have to walk up two flights. Oh, of my stairs. God. <laughs> I thought you were joking. That's no, why I no, 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 I'm serious. 
everybody everybody on the Zoom call was just like, and? <laughs> no, they used to, yeah. Man. Yeah, that sounds like CPG. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they still do that today. They just cut fingers off and mail them. Yeah. That's too funny. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I made a comment in my recent post. I, I stopped doing the Kepler's vaults because the guy who scanned those articles in just died suddenly, you know? Wow. And I mean, I'm not, you know, he, he himself you know, these weren't like stories that he was telling me, but there's just all these resources, you know, um, there, there was a, a Argus collector that actually had donated me my golden shield uh, up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He was like the guy I would ask questions whenever I needed help with something Argus related. And he passed away earlier this year too. You know, I mean, there's other people I know uh, that I talk to a lot and they're all old, you know? And I yeah. mean, you know, I mean, not to get nostalgic, but you know, while I, I do my site and, you know, these podcasts for, for multiple reasons, um, one of them is to preserve these stories somehow, you know, because mm-hmm. when film, when, you know, when digital came out, film photography just kind of was put on pause. Everybody got excited about digital and then poof, film was just gone, you know, and everybody just forgot about it. And you could get mm-hmm. like us on eBay in 2010 for like 50 bucks, you know? And then finally people were like, all right, well, we kind of still, you know, like these cameras. And by the mid, you know, 2015, over the past five, six years, you know, the prices have gone back up. There's this interest in it, but it's like, nobody's been preserving these stories. Yeah. You know, when I, mm-hmm. when I do research on an article, sometimes I'm using the Wayback machine. You know, that's how I find a lot of my stuff is that I'm looking at old websites from 2006 that have been offline, you know, and it sucks because most of the time the JPEGs are missing, but at least I can get some, some text, you know, and some of these are like one of my Miranda articles. um, I can't remember off the top of my head, but like I found a typed literally on a typewriter. Like you can tell this was a typewriter. It was an interview with some guy who worked at AIG, which was the distributor for Miranda back then talking about why the company failed, you know? And I mean, we all know Miranda just was a miserable company, but like, you know, he's telling specifics though, you know, and, and those stories, not, I mean, he's, that guy's dead, but not only the person who archived it on that website, the website's even dead. Yeah. You know, and, and there's going to be a point where these stories are just going to disappear. So that you know. that was one of the best parts. That's one of the best parts of working at Central Camera is all the old yeah. grump, grumpy film guys. They were all in the industry, you know, from the 50s, 60s, 70s. Yeah. And they saw the entire industry go through all those changes. And they have all those amazing stories, you know. So you're right, Mike. And there's this sort of this digital gap where information just disappeared at the end of the film era. So well, while, while I was waiting for the podcast to begin today, I was killing time reading Mike's article about the, uh, the last run of Kepler's vault. And mm-hmm. there's very, there's, there's like a lot of melancholy to that, to think that, you know, that these, these old magazines are, I mean, I hate to say it, but libraries are ditching their copies. Yeah. And, you know, somebody and, asked mm-hmm. me a while ago, like, aren't you copyright, like violating copyrights? I'm like, maybe, I don't know. I mean, like, <laughs> can you, can you scan an old magazine and share it online today? I mean, I have to imagine at some point, nobody who's, cares who's, anymore. Who's going to litigate it though? That's what right. I'm saying though. It's not around. It, and I know right. that money talks, but like, hypothetically speaking, if somebody ever were to contact me, my, my only defense would be, I'm trying to keep the stuff alive, you know? I mean, and, and it's never happened. I'm not really that worried about it, but it's like, God, those magazines just have so much information in them. And even 
it's not even just the information. When you read a magazine, a modern or, or, or popular photography magazine from the 50s, the way that the information is presented is different than it is mm-hmm. now. You know, now it's all about top 10 this, top 10 that, you know, how you've been shooting JPEGs is wrong, you know, and, and it, there's no education anymore. You know, there's no why this is how it is. And when you would read some of those articles, um, you know, I want to share an email I got. There's, there's a guy, Terry, um, who contributes to my website a lot. He's probably one of my most biggest um, commenters. He's in the UK though. Uh, but he wrote in response to that articles, um, he said, I'm, I'm going to quote him. I feel that there is a difference of perspective between people of a certain age, such as I, and who were hobby photographers during much of the periods the articles covered. And simply looking backwards in history to events one has no experience of. This is true of a lot of life, of course, but experience the technology as it advanced can't be replicated by reading about it. So for me, reading the articles did take me back to a bygone era, remembering my responses to the developments, such as improved auto exposure in true TTL meeting, the impact of cameras with autofocus, or becoming truly little pocket wonders like the Roly 35 series or the more advanced Ripo GR1 with autofocus and auto exposure. Unlike today, when cameras and mobile phones seem to hit the shelves at the pace at the pace of an express train and the technology no longer surprises us back when things really yeah. did. And like that, that last part there really hits it for me because, I mean, what we can do with smartphones is amazing. You know, I mean, I can take these really great pictures of my, you know, kids and as they're going to bed, you know, and they look great, you know, and I could share them to my, my, my parents instantly. And I mean, and it's, but it, it doesn't amaze me though. It, you mm-hmm. just expect it, you know? Yeah. And, you know, we all just talk about like TTL metering through the lens metering. It's like, all right, what's the big deal. But like when some of these things first came out, it amazed people, mm-hmm. you know, the idea that an electric eye could automatically calculate exposure that blew people's minds. And I mean, let's be honest, any of us on this podcast or anybody listening, when was the last time something in technology truly blew your mind, mm-hmm. you know, and that's gone. You know, for one, we've become spoiled, but the technology has just advanced at a pace where like you're no longer amazed anymore. And and that's something that that these old articles, I think, reflect upon that you just don't see today. Even even the new Apple thing where it blurs the background and, and does all that officially, uh, that's probably the closest we've got to something that's amazing. And even that's sort of like, meh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's 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 it's, they- it's a- They've been doing it. They've been doing it. American football, NFL games where they're literally running around with like a Canon EOS something. I don't know what camera it is, but they're, it's like maximum bokeh during football games. And and I know what, are they really? And I know what they're doing, but I find it annoying. Like, it's like some, I don't want to, you know, like blame millennials or anything, but there's probably some young person that's like, oh, let's do this. This is going to look awesome. You know, and I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at it. It's like, that's really freaking annoying. It looks like a video game now yeah. instead of a, a live match. Well, they did. What was that movie? Um, that the zombie movie where they're in Vegas. Uh, they, they just, oh, yeah, yeah. it just came out where they shot the movie on the Canon dream lens, the oh, O95. Yeah. What movie is that? It just came out. Come on, someone's got to know. I've actually watched Army of Darkness. <laughs> no, but it's uh, Army of the Dead. Army of the Dead, yeah. Yeah, that, yep. that's it. Yeah. So I, I was watching it, and I, I really had no idea they were doing this. And I'm watching it. I'm like, they're doing some crazy shit with a, with a bokeh lens here. I didn't know that it was the Dream Lens, the O95. 
But sure enough, I, I Googled it. And this director mounted the, a dream lens and some cinema camera and, and he's got it wide open. And just the depth of field is, is razor sharp during these action scenes. And it's frankly obnoxious, you know, I mean, so, I mean, kind of off topic there, but, you know, you could do some cool stuff with, with, with practical lenses. But now, now the iPhone is doing it, you know, just digitally. There's a cool technology that's, that amazed me that I saw the other day, and that's green screens are on the way out. Now it's LED wraparound screens mm. on sound stages. Like the whole the Mandalorian TV show used no green screen. It's all shot in a soundstage with like a CGI background on wow. a massive wraparound LED display oh, wow. that as the camera pans, it's panning and the shadows off his uniform or the, the reflections match. So it's oh, wow. so much easier for them. And he can see where he is so he can act to the scene in the background. Things fly through. He can watch it. So is it's it amazing. like on Star Trek, the holodeck? Is it like that? Kind of. I don't know that, but sounds okay, like right, it sorry. might be. So there's, so there's a, uh, they have the CGI guy sitting there with the director and he's like, move that mountain there, move this here. Once they've shot it, it's in the can. There's no more uh, CGI that needs to be done. Yeah. It's, it's finished. Yeah, they have there's, the a, there's, a, there's an abandoned the uh, shopping one. mall down in Tampa that a group is turning into an LCD screen studio. And they've got like a thousand foot long LCD wall where you can do like an entire like traveling shot of somebody walking down like an entire cityscape. Uh, and they can do the whole thing with those LCD screens in the background. It's it's truly mind blowing it's nuts <laughs> okay so technology still impresses but it's 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 behind the scenes technology maybe well, if, we, if we take a step back vlad you picked up a whole bunch of books there i'm, I'm intrigued yeah. now what, what they are they, oh, they look really interesting <laughs> anthony got it yeah. so uh, do you have any yeah. do you have any issues of this with what of, of, of the of the photo magazine yeah this is this is what it is <laughs> awesome yeah. So basically, I'm, it was, I was kind of picked up this whole, this is like a 20, 30 pound stack of books that I paid like $300 to ship from Ukraine. Uh, so these are actually magazines uh, that are a, a year worth of uh, Soviet photo magazines. Somebody did like a, like a huge book out of it. Uh, I don't know if it's... It, the husband has a color and like some for the 60s. And Unreal. Some of these are from 50s. So, I mean, it's to the point of Mike's original point that, I mean, probably like, I mean, a lot of us are collectors and the history behind each one of these items that you collect is probably the stuff that's most valuable rather than, than, than camera. Camera is just the final result that you see, mm. but everything behind it is the knowledge and history and uh, getting all these books and magazines right now, especially from Soviet Union where stuff was like so secretive and uh, a mm. lot of the stuff like was lost and very, and, or some of the magazines were made in such small uh, numbers that it was like, really hard to get. People, people were collecting these and making uh, a whole year's worth of, uh, I don't know what it's called in English, but we had, there was a word in Russian that they, when they collect the whole year worth and make it into a book so they can make, give you proper uh, book binding to like a 12 issues and became like a very thick book. Um, so I'm trying to pick up as many of these, but it's a, it's another very expensive hobby because the shipping on this yeah. is just ridiculous. They're heavy. They're heavy. Yeah. How much, I, like, 
$280 just to ship. Wow. The stagnants. But, wow. but wow. all the info is in it is just unbelievable. The photography, uh, I mean, uh, and the information about like the all these factories releasing various prototypes, you know, I haven't heard of. I mean, there's a picture of cameras that I haven't seen before. So, I mean, wow. they announced them and then when I made them, they made like five of them and some collector may be lucky enough to find one or two of those. They go for crazy money, but yeah. But but you're looking at you. <laughs> Sorry, what? But you're looking though. <laughs> you're looking. There'll, there'll be times, sometimes I'll find out about like a Soviet camera and I'll ask Vlad, I'm like, do you have one of these? He goes, no, you're crazy. There's only two of those. And I'm like, oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> yeah, people ask me that a lot. I'm like, oh, I want, I want to buy this camera and buy this camera. I'm like, well, do you want to sell your house? Yeah. <laughs> buy this camera? I mean, I can probably arrange that. <laughs> there, there was an issue of photo that came up at a fine art auction that was a, a, one of the Rodchenko issues uh, from the oh. 30s. And, oh, I really wanted it. But I did not have the line of credit that was needed to bid on that issue. <laughs> yeah, some some of the stuff is uh, really really expensive. Have you seen the 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 on eBay the the, the auction uh, for uh, it's not an auction it's buy it now for two hundred thousand euro for the photo sniper FS three prototype the navy kind from USSR, right? It's listed right now. Two hundred uh, grand. I'm sorry. Two hundred thousand. You said. 200,000 euros. So it's about $240,000. Buy it now price on eBay. It's ridiculous, but it's, but it's, I think it's only a few made of these. Real quick, you told me a story a while back, Vlad, about there were some cameras or lenses you tried to get out of uh, an old Soviet country and they, they couldn't ship them because they were declared like secrets or something. Or remember that you told me like they, it, it's part of the history, so they won't let it leave. Oh yeah, well, you had to ship it again. Yeah, I had to ship ship a bunch of stuff double because anything before uh, the more than fifty years old, they declare like a national treasure. Okay. So and you need special permission to uh, send it. So like a lot of times they like if it's like a wooden camera, they automatically think it's nineteenth century, uh, even though USSR was making these wooden cameras until like early nineties. <laughs> uh, uh so try to ship it they basically return and say like oh we can't you cannot pass customs because of like national value or whatever to okay. this stuff. so it goes it back and i have to pay another hundred dollars to ship it again oh, and, and, and it's like it's like when when you get lucky but it goes through a second time i mean i've had that happen three or four times already but wow but the uh military stuff is really uh military like aerial cameras uh, do not try to buy them, to buy them from Russia right now because they they stop them and if they if they stop them the seller basically goes to jail. Wow! Uh, they oh, wow. I, mean, I had that happen to one of the guys that I know. Well, he didn't go to jail, but he got uh, Spetsnaz uh, break down his door, go into the to his apartment and do a full search, uh, throw him onto the ground, and basically go through all his all his cameras. And it, just because he ordered a couple of uh, Ukrainian um, from Ukraine, he ordered a couple of uh, military aerial cameras that from like 1970s, apparently they're still used. Uh, and he just basically bought them for his collection and it got stopped. And he he's in a lot of trouble. I mean, he has a court date and everything. So wow. Vlad, I remember a couple of podcasts ago, you talked about a, a I believe there was a like a spy museum that was going under and they were going to yeah. do a massive auction. 
Were you able to find anything uh, fantastic out of that? Oh, well, something crazy happened. So there was an organization that decided to create another KGB museum in UK. So they secured a, a grant from UK government for this museum. It was a Cold War era museum. So the stuff that, that was supposed to sell for around $300, $400 sold for $8,000 and $9,000. So I bid on about 10 things. Um, I bid like fair market price, and then it went 10 times that. Wow. Well, the owner, I'm sh- and the owner was really happy that it happened, of course. Uh, <laughs> he's, he got like, um, I think he broke even on all the losses he got with the museum being closed during pandemic, but uh i i think i think nobody had a chance to buy anything most of most of most of it um was bought up by this entity that was backed by uk government so it was, wow. it was absolutely crazy the photo sniper fs2 that's the regular photo sniper that you usually sell see for 250 dollars sold for uh six grand uh i have a wall of these uh then there, there was a plastic camera like a 110 format that's like in the shape of a book made in china that was listed as a spy camera and you can buy it right now new on amazon for 80 dollars went for 650 dollars so like stuff that a fake john player special cigarette box that i don't know i buy them for 250 even around close to 10 grand i think well, on the auction before it went for 30 grand. So I don't know. How that, how <laughs> one of my favorite, one of my favorite Soviet spy cameras is one of the Ajax cameras that they fit inside of a Zenit. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a spy camera inside of another camera. It, it fits inside of everything. It fits yeah. inside of a, of a movie camera. There's a course film cine camera. There's, there's, a, there's a housing made like this. So you, you shoot with a movie camera forward, and, but the actual yeah. photos are sh- taken to the side. And there's yeah. A, Hang on, well, I'm going to pull this up. I'm going to pull this up. What's the point of a spy camera that fits in another camera? Well, I'm, think about it. You could, be, you, could be, you could be like somewhere out and pretend like you're a tourist. Right. And you point your picture away from what you want to take the picture of when in reality. So it's a different it's angle. Yeah. It's a different angle. The side. Yeah. It shoots out the side. But it's uh, but they they chose a Zenit, which is just perfect. It just seems like the right thing to do. You know, yeah. a Soviet camera inside of another Soviet camera. They have cassette players that also like uh, the back of the cassette player has a little hole and this camera is built mm-hmm. in. So you walk around listening to your uh, cassette player and it's like one of those big ones. Uh, and uh, it just it, it shooting pictures. Um, I don't know. They, they, I've seen pretty much anything you can think of that was adapted for this little F21. This day yeah. Yeah, they uh, reading about. Sorry, Anthony. I just remember they the, the people who were trained to use them, they couldn't be fat because they would put these cameras like on their belt buckles and they didn't want a belly to get in the way of like the camera lens. So you, you actually had to be skinny to be able to be certified <laughs> to use these cameras. Well, in USSR, you, it was really rarely you see a fat people. It was always shortages. <laughs> that's true. It was never, it was never I, almost a problem. I, mean, I guess that's an American problem. <laughs> you know, the, the robot too has that crazy, um side view viewfinder where you can switch mm-hmm. a button so instead of looking through the back of the camera mm-hmm. you can look through the edge of the camera yeah and I, I could never figure that out because if i've ever tried to use that you never feel more conspicuous than holding the camera sideways, sideways. Your eye. yeah there's like a- i just don't understand how that was supposed to be stealthy 
Uh, but, but if you have the Zenit, though, it looks like you're using the camera properly, <laughs> when in reality, you're taking a picture off True. the side of it, though. No, so it, that's... it wasn't the actual Zenit, though. It was the case for the Zenit. So oh, it, it wasn't the actual camera? No, it was the case. So it would have oh, a case okay. off your neck, and then you would have, and the camera would be inside the case. I see. I see. I've never actually seen one. I just remember reading about it. So I screwed up there. I'll, I'll send you a video from that KGB okay. museum. Actually, yeah. I actually took a video of the owner uh, demonstrating it. Oh, wow. Those flat in the in the Ukraine in the Ukraine is this such a thing as street photography? Would people go out and do that today, or would they still face problems? Uh, no, that's Ukraine's really free country. I mean, there's no problems. It's a very westernized uh, country. Uh, there will be no issues uh, taking pictures anywhere. You would run into picture taking issues probably like in places like Turkmenistan. Uh, sometimes now nowadays maybe in Belarus uh, because it's kind of like uh, all the events going on and the dictatorship yeah. things going on. But uh, uh, Turkmenistan is very tightly controlled. Uh, it's almost like North Korea. Like when you get there, you have to uh, get a guide to show you around. You can't just uh, go around by yourself taking pictures. You can only take pictures of approved places and so on. Um, but m- most of the uh, former uh, former Soviet countries, uh, you you will not have any problems taking pictures. The only place that I felt like truly um, endangered was in El Salvador. There are areas that are just like guns everywhere. And I was driving around with a, with, with a coffee farmer uh, and I was in the back of his SUV and he had a driver who's a military guy. And every time I'd we'd go through a village, I'd roll down the window and pull out my camera and try to get some street photos. And he would take the blacked out window and roll it back up on me and I'd roll it down. I'd pull out the camera. He'd roll it back up. And finally he like said some very anguished words and the farmer looks back at me and he goes, look, in this town, there are two people that take photographs. There are the cops taking pictures of the drug Lords to identify them, to arrest them. And there are the drug Lords taking pictures of the cops. So they know who to kill. And we don't want you taking photographs because you were going to be mistaken for one or the other. And we don't need that. Wow. Yeah. Well, I, I ran into issues in Middlebury, Indiana last month. <laughs> uh, because apparently uh, you're not supposed to photograph the Amish. And I didn't know that. Uh, so they get really, really upset to the point. They're really peaceful people. But they get really upset to the point they can actually scream at you and get really angry because you're not supposed to take a picture of their face. I mm. did not know that. <laughs> so oh. a couple of times I tried to take a picture of them uh, riding a buggy. Um, I got almost got into trouble so this was pretty interesting you know you've just you've just solved something for me vlad 25 years ago i was backpacking around the states and i did take a picture of some of those amish people in a car and they were really angry and i could never till this day i had no idea why yeah (laughs) and i I feel bad because i i recommended that he go there (laughs) (laughs) go see the amish they're super nice they they are Mike, but you live like uh, right in that vicinity. Yeah, I'm about an hour away from there. You you, you couldn't warn me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Sorry. I guess I was like sticking my knife in the film right in their face, and they're like, "No." <laughs> yeah, maybe with your accent, you could just say, "I'm a tourist," and they would leave you alone. But I guess not. Just some KGB chronicles. <laughs> I ran into some trouble in Egypt. I was just using my Lomo LCA doing a little bit of street photography and I'd worked there 10 years before and it was no worries, but with the new regime, it's a real problem now. 
and um, the police stop you and they want to look at your pictures and delete them and, you know, it's film, you can't do it. So luckily it it was okay, I got let off. But the driver that I I had there at the time, he'd just taken a a couple around, a tourist couple that were on their honeymoon, a world honeymoon. And the girl was taking, the wife was taking pictures of something, the police got her and they pulled her into the into the police station and they're going through her iPhone and she they'd been to the States. She had pictures of the White House. They'd been to England. She had pictures of Buckingham Palace, you know, and they're like, you've got pictures of the British monarch. You've got pictures of the American president. Delete, delete, delete. She had to delete her whole honeymoon roll oh, off her man. iPhone. Oh, wow. Well, Hopefully it was synced to the cloud. You actually no. did remind me one one instance where in a former Soviet Republic you probably shouldn't be taking pictures is in the in the metro in the subway. So because mm. to these days to these days they are considered strategic objects. So if you if you I don't know if you watch this uh, blogger on, on YouTube Bold and Bankrupt, absolutely brilliant uh, YouTuber. Uh, he goes around uh, former Soviet countries and basically uh, videotapes everything. And he keeps being chased by babushkas, like in all those subways, <laughs> trying, like, saying, like, do not, you cannot take pictures, you cannot take video here. And so apparently still kind of consider like military installations. So they kind of wary on that. But other than that. Oh, that's, that's interesting because I, um, when I was working in Moscow, I, um, I really used to go down to the train stations because they're, they're so ornate and so beautiful. And I, I have no problems photographing it, there. It, it is, but, but you, you, you do get a chance of being attacked by a babushka. well it was actually i mean everyone's got these stories mine's not actually photography related but i did actually work for a russian company for a while in in moscow and we got raided by the uh prosecutor's office and that was actually quite interesting being involved in that because it's a bit different to uh to what i'm used to in in say australia for instance where you know the prosecutor would come and hand over a piece of paper and say look show me all your paperwork they're, they're literally breaking the door down and there's machine guns and all sorts of things there. Oh, yeah. Which was a, yeah, which is a they bit were, different. They have a special group of Spetsnaz for this. This has yeah. become less of an open source podcast, but an international uh, podcast. Well, it's more about <laughs> all these different countries, yeah. I mean, yeah. You, you travel, you, you, got, you got to know what where you can take pictures that you cannot. With this great panel of experts, I have a, a I have a camera and lens and film question for you guys. Okay, go for uh, it. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, Wednesday uh, evening, SpaceX launch. I'm going to go try to photograph it from Playa Linda Beach. What would you take to shoot a rocket launch in the evening? Color, black and white, lens, wide, telephoto, what would you do? I mean, how far away are you going to be from it? about four miles but it feels really close like it's it'll rattle the car windows when it goes off wow i i mean whenever i capture i mean this is probably a boring answer but whenever i capture something that's not easily recreatable i go Mm. with as much automation as possible Mm. i mean get something that you know you can trust uh put a zoom lens on it so that you're not stuck with i mean because i have no concept for how four miles away is from a rocket but i have to imagine you're, you're going to want to absorb the, the scene, but it might also be useful to get a couple close-ups. So, I mean, unless you're willing to have multiple cameras with multiple lenses, I'd probably find th- the best zoom you can on a camera that's got as much automation just to not mess with it. Because like be I dark. said, you, you screw it up, you're not going to be able to do it again, you know? Does, yeah. does the actual launch change the lighting? 
it lights up. It, it, it lights things up. Like, yeah, I don't think there's a sunny sixteen equivalent for shooting a rocket. Yeah, I, I, I would. I would actually want to do the. I would actually want to do the time exposure with a thirty-five millimeter lens and get or get a the arc. twenty-four. Yeah, and get the arc going up and some silhouettes or something. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I, I, but I tend to not try to push the boundaries of stuff I know I'm not well suited to shoot. I mean, right. you, Anthony, you could you could do a lot better than I could with it, but, but I mean, you know to, get, I mean? to I, get a timed exposure of a rocket going up would be fantastic if you could pull it off, but yeah. the odds of, of it not turning out good. And then you have nothing. Well, if you, you know, know where it's going to go, I guess you're okay. Right. right? Yeah. If you know what direction, I mean, if you can have multiple cameras and you can get something set yeah. up can, that way, I can take as many cameras as I can fit in my car. It's only well, two and a half you, hours away. You have college students working for you. Can't you just bring them on assignment <laughs> or something? They can be your assistants. <laughs> You know, you get to do this one. You get to do. I mean, that's probably the best way to do it if you want to get creative. But if you're limiting yourself to, from to one camera, and it's not something that's easy recreatable, I know this is a disappointing answer, but I'd go with something automatic. Yeah, I was, you, I was thinking. I was thinking I'd of, probably of go thinking, color. Yeah, I would too. I was thinking of taking the the Contax ST with the Zeiss 300 millimeter with Lomo 800. Yeah, because I, I mean, I, I just yeah. picture those old pictures of the, the space shuttles going up. Yeah. You know, with uh, mounted to the big rust colored fuel tank and, you know, seeing the red, white and blue on the, 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 the boosters, you won't be that close. <laughs> okay. But that. still, you know, those things are lit really well, you know, right. de- depending on how late at night, you might even be able to get some like dusk from the sky or something. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know, but I'll probably haul like three, three tripods out, like have three cameras set up. So, yeah, uh, I actually kind of wanted to take the, uh, the best with that old, uh, uh, 350 millimeter. Uh, oh yeah. Under. The minimum focus 90 feet lens. Yeah. Because I mean, it's, I mean, I can set that puppy at infinity and aim it at the launch pad and get like maybe three or four shots off before it's out of the frame. Mm, and then yeah. do something like what Johnny's saying with something with a timed exposure. Yeah. That'd be uh, cool. With, with a wider lens. That'd be really cool. Maybe get right, a fast well, lens too, like a 55 millimeter, uh, like a 1.2. If ah. you know one. Is that it, it'll help when it's dark? True. Yeah, definitely. Rocket bokeh. <laughs> why, why not? Focus on infinity and live alone. And then, All right. Then it and, cr- and crop it. Well, we we have gone way past an hour, which is fine. I, I'm really enjoying this conversation. I'd love to do this forever, but uh, there there are limits to what I think people are willing to listen to on a podcast. Um, I want to thank Vlad and uh, Matt for, for joining us. It's our first two completely unscripted, unknown guests. Um, you know, maybe next week we can get a few more people to jump in and ask some questions. Um, you know, I mean, just I hope hopefully you have a better understanding now, Matt, of, of what I meant by open source and that absolutely none of this was planned at all. Um, I, I all, all I do is write down a couple topics just in case we run out of things to talk about. Uh, that way we're not just like, so how's it, you know, so we have something, but beyond that though, none of this is planned. Um, I just want to say to the young people listening out there that you don't have to listen to these old guys about Photoshop. You can just do it with open source <laughs> on the cheap, even with windows. Yeah. <laughs> so Matt, is there a website or anything that people can, can see your work or anything or you, you... <sighs> I, I tend not, I don't, yeah, like yeah, M Jones 41 on Flickr if you want to see some pictures, but I don't like followers. You know, I have enough friends. I have enough okay, people. Okay, that's fine. I no wrong with that. I'll, just, I'll, just, I'll just edit that section out. 
Uh, <laughs> Vlad, I mean, obviously you have ussrphoto.com. Uh, is there anything, any other places you're sharing your oh, photos? Yeah. yeah, so there's there's main site, which is an antique website for antique stuff, <laughs> ussrphoto.com. And uh, I'm on Instagram as a USSR, USSR photo. Are there um, any Amish photos on, on that? I uh, know <laughs> that's just pictures of my cameras. Uh, I just keep track of my collection there, but um, people seem to like it, I guess. Uh, okay. Uh, Theo, your, your site? Yes, photothinking.com. Um, it's been a bit static lately because we're, we're still in lockdown here in Sydney. Yeah. But, uh, and I tend to write articles as I shoot. Um, so it's, it's a little bit static, but um, hopefully in the next uh, four weeks or five weeks, we'll, we'll start publishing a bit more. All right. Anthony? I'm on Instagram as Kino Pravda. Uh, and over on uh, Flickr, uh, either under my name or Dasein Design. And finally, Mr. Sisson. Um, I have an uh, Instagram site that hasn't been updated for several years. You can check out, <laughs> check out, look up system photography, or you can just come visit me on my front porch. Front porch, play with his mantises. Yep. <laughs> and I'm Mike Ekman uh, from MikeEckman.com. I don't have a Flickr account. I don't, ha- I do have an Instagram account. I actually did make one, but I never updated it. So I guess I will someday, but uh, thanks everybody for joining. Uh, We'll do this again next week. So uh, have fun.